What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Well, hello, everybody, and good Friday afternoon. I am Brian Sullivan, in for Kelly once again. Inflation, deficits, rising rates, and stimulus. Oh, my. Can the Federal Reserve handle this delicate balancing act with $7 trillion taxpayer dollars on the line? In moments, Steve Leishman speaks with Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren. No open house, no walkthrough, no problem. Parts of the housing market are so strong that buyers are doing something they haven't done since, well, just before the financial crisis. What that is ahead. And somebody reboot the movie War Games because President-elect Biden's new spending plan plans to spend a lot on cybersecurity. We'll show you some names that could win out, Joshua. All that ahead, but right now let us dig deeper into these markets and your money on a Friday where it's been one of the, the weaker weeks, Mike Santoli, that we have seen in a long time and a big options expiry as well today. Maybe some disappointment around stimulus. What's at work? Yep, all that stuff feeding into it, Brian. Also, I mean, the market's certainly due to have a little bit of slippage here after uh, coming into the year pretty hot. You have about a half a percent decline in the broader indexes like the S&P. The small caps down more than 1%. The whole week seems like some fatigue among mega cap stocks, along with some hyperactivity in some small and speculative stuff. And some of that is coming off the boil. Look at the intraday chart of the S&P 500 just to see where we actually uh, found a little bit of support here around 3750. Now, that's both about the year-to-date break-even level, uh, as well as a kind of a short-term uh, trend line. So basically, buyers came in before people had to start to ask the question if this is going to be a, a larger breakdown. Obviously, you have to see how the rest of the day uh, plays out. Also, some of those recent hot IPOs, uh, manifestations of that speculative fervor, giving back a little bit today. So Poshmark, Peco, big winners yesterday. You see here the percent gain from their IPO prices, and then you have a pretty big slide uh, in that Poshmark, less so uh, in Petco there. And then Walt Wells Fargo uh, is emblematic of what's happening with the large banks reporting earnings today, also giving back 6.5%, but look at this run uh, that we've had over three months. So clearly uh, a lot of the improvement in the banking sector was in the price, Brian. Yeah, brutal day for Wells Fargo. What I've said is arguably one of the most important companies and stocks in the United States. Mike Santoli, we'll see you in a bit. All right. Now we've got to get straight to Steve Leishman, who is standing by with Boston Federal Reserve President Eric Rosengren. Very timely interview. Steve, take it away. Yeah, Brian, of course, standing by virtually, I am pleased to uh, bring in uh, Boston Fed President Eric Rosengren uh, to the exchange. Uh, Eric, thanks for joining us. Um, neither of us know when these uh, interviews are um, uh, booked what the news is going to have been the day before. Uh, but in this case, you're the first guy out of the box that we get to ask about President-elect uh, Biden's $1.9 trillion with a T stimulus plan. I'm wondering if you could tell me how you as a monetary policymaker uh, think about a proposal that size. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. Good to be on. Um, it is a big package, but I think it's appropriate. So uh, the economy is in a lull right now. 
we've had a series of pretty weak data. Uh, the last jobs report highlighted a loss of 140,000 jobs and an unemployment rate staying at 6.7%. And if you look at where it was impacted, it really was those areas that are being affected by the pandemic. So it was restaurants and bars were down 372,000 jobs. Amusements and recreation were down 92,000 jobs. That all indicates that we need to do more su to support the economy. So while it is a very big package, I do think that um, until we get to the point where people have been vaccinated, where businesses have been bridged, and where many of the unemployed workers have come back to work, we need an expansionary fiscal policy. And to the extent that it targets those parts of the economy most affected by the pandemic, that is the appropriate action for fiscal policy at this time. Eric, obviously, as a Fed maker, you have the, the uh, dual responsibility of maximum employment and stable prices. And so this affects you on the back end when it comes to your um, your mandates. Is it possible that there could be too much stimulus? Is it possible that you end up creating inflation down the road that you have to worry about? So we can't continue spending trillions of dollars and my expectation would be as we get closer to full employment, we would get a tighter fiscal policy. So uh, we do have to consider fiscal policy when we're thinking about what appropriate monetary policy is. But when we're at the zero lower bound, it's a great time to be using fiscal policy and fiscal policy can target sectors of the economy in the way that monetary policy can't. It's equally important when the time comes for fiscal, fiscal policy to become more restrictive. We're pretty far from that time right now, but that time will come, hopefully, in the over the next couple of years. Um, but uh, I think that the mix that we have right now, actually, on fiscal and monetary policy is appropriate. When you look down the road at your forecast and your outlook, and I do want to get to that, um, does the idea that a large, pa a large package this size, large relief package this size could pass, bring forward a date when you might think about either A, reducing the amount of asset purchases, or B, even raising interest rates? So it helps support the economy. The main problem right now with the economy is not that we don't have stimulative monetary policy or fiscal policy. It's that we have the wrong pandemic policy. So too many people are infected and we're being too slow to get uh, shots in the arm. So it, the last night, it was made clear that they're focused on making sure that we ramp up the number of people that get vaccines. I think economic forecasting between now and September is really forecasting how quickly do we inoculate a sizable percentage of the population. So the economy really is being driven by public health concerns. That's exactly why you look at retail sales, you look at the last employment report, uh, until uh, people feel safe to travel, to go shopping, to stay in hotels, uh, you're not going to get a full recovery of the economy. And that's really determined by public health. Let me uh, get uh, drill down a little bit into that outlook. Um, and, and I'm guessing there are two distinct pieces of this outlook. One is the next few months and then is uh, and then is beyond that uh, when when vaccines begin to be more widely distributed. Walk us through the kind of numbers you're looking at for the next few months, and then what happens after if we get widespread distribution of the vaccine? The next six months, I expect to continue to be much slower than we otherwise would anticipate <clears throat> because of the challenges in getting a high percentage of the population inoculated. 
Um, so I'm expecting a, a weak first quarter, uh, some improvement in the second quarter, but I'm expecting a very strong second half of the year. Now, that depends on how quickly we are able to bring down the infection rate and get the inoculation uh, going. And that's something we don't have a lot of historical data. So there's a huge standard error about predicting that. But in the second half of the year, there are a number of reasons for why I'd be very optimistic. So uh, we have a situation where the savings rate is above 12 percent. So for those people that have not been badly impacted by the pandemic, They've had a lot of forced savings because they haven't been able to travel. They haven't been able to go to restaurants. Um, stock prices are up. Real estate prices are up. Uh, I do expect more positive payroll employment as time goes on. And fiscal policy, as we just discussed, is highly stimulative. That would mean that consumption would be very strong. If consumption is strong, the economy will be strong. In addition, very low interest rates mean that residential investment is likely to continue to be pretty strong. And I think many firms are thinking Eric, differently about their investments. So all those are second half of the year. I expect to be much stronger. I have a broader question about Marcus I want to get to, but you just mentioned real estate. I want a quick question. Uh, somebody who I talked to this morning wanted to ask you, which I think is a great question. If the real estate market is so strong, why is the Fed still buying mortgages? And do you think it ought to get out of that business and whatever purchase it's making go over into treasuries? So it is partly strong because we're buying mortgages. So the low interest rate environment faced by individuals that are looking to buy a house, uh, you wouldn't have strong residential, but those things are correlated. You wouldn't have uh, strong residential investment if we didn't have low interest rates on mortgages. So this is a time where it's very important that we have residential investment come back strongly. And so I think it is appropriate for us to continue to be buying both MBS and Treasury securities. Okay, let's talk about the broader purchases that are out there. The uh, 10-year yield uh, breaching what I would call the psychologically insignificant 1% uh, uh, level. Uh, do, do you think there's a, is there a point, is there a, a level that you could give us that you think about where the Fed might become concerned about the rising yields relative to what it's trying to accomplish and come in and do some form of operation in order to tamp down long-term yields? I mean, we're not going to just focus on any one yield. We're going to be focused on what the overall economic impact is. So we do have to think about uh, how quickly the long end of the market is going up and whether that dramatically changes our expectation for the path for the economy. I'd say that the increase that we've seen to date uh, wouldn't be enough to do that. And I would also say... Now, one reason it hasn't moved up more is because we are doing those purchases of long-term securities, both the treasuries and the mortgage-backed securities. Eric, you've been a, a Fed president who has not been shy about talking about concern about the market uh, and the level of stocks um, and the relationship of those uh, of stock values to Fed policy. Uh, today, the market's down, but mostly it's been up and up strongly. Does that level of concern you have about the Federal Reserve uh, easy monetary policy pushing up stocks uh, give you more concern these days? So my financial stability concerns are really about what happens when the economy is much stronger than it is today. So it's not surprising to me that when most forecasters are expecting a strong second half and subsequent years to be uh, reasonably strong, and when interest rates are very low, that means asset prices are going to be higher. Um, this would not be an appropriate rate if we were at full employment. And so 
my financial stability concerns are in actually a different direction right now. So one of the reasons we had such problems in March was that uh, we don't have the infrastructure. And by that, I mean things like money market funds uh, being appropriately regulated, the ability to make sure that the Treasury and MBS market continues to function efficiently, even when lots of people are trying to sell. So I think there are a lot of infrastructure issues that would have made March much less severe, and we haven't resolved those problems yet. A second concern is that um, there are a lot of problems that are in commercial real estate. So if you look at the hotel space, if you look at the retail space, um, there are a lot of problems in those loans. You see it in the CMBS market. You're going to start seeing it leach into uh, banking portfolios as we stop having the same degree of forbearance as the course of this year goes. So in the near term, I'm worried about some of those sectors that have really been hit by the pandemic. In the longer term, keeping rates very low in an environment when we were at full employment, the economy's growing strongly, that would be the situation where I would worry about taking excessive risk. Eric, very quickly, we're going to have to go now. I appreciate your time this afternoon. Um, The Boston Fed, and you in particular, led the Main Street Lending Facility, which has since been closed down after having a a rough start, I would say, and then uh, ramping up towards the end. In a recent speech, you gave a bunch of ideas for how it could have been made better. So I really want to ask you this question. Have you been in talks at all with the incoming Biden administration about resuscitating the Main Street Lending Facility? The only conversation I've had with the administration uh, was with the transition team. Uh, We did talk about um, how the Main Street program was structured, but it was not talking about what we would do, but more what we had done. Do you think it should be revived? Uh, I think that the program was very, very useful and uh, could have done a lot more lending. Um, I think it's a little bit challenging at this stage to recreate the program. It would require a 13-3 designation, which would require both the Treasury Secretary and the Board of Governors to think that we were in exigent circumstances. Um, As the economy improves, uh, this may not be the right program for that. And I would say the fact that fiscal policy is targeting a lot more funds to small and medium-sized businesses. The willingness of the federal government to provide direct aid to businesses is probably more useful than a Main Street lending program at this stage. Eric, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. Good to be with you, Steve. Brian, back to you. At uh, I guess you're at HQ. Well, I'm at the Sullivan headquarters. I know that, Steve Leisman, which is probably a lot like the Leisman headquarters. By the way, with Powell yesterday and Rosengren today, if anybody thinks the Fed, Steve, is not going to keep rates low for long, they must be already dipping in a little bit. You know what I mean? Because every single speaker has said it. Rates will stay low for a long time, right? I think you're right. I think they're playing like rope-a-dope like Ali. You know, you throw at them the stimulus. You throw at them higher interest rates. You throw at them possibility of inflation and higher growth in vaccines. And they're like, no, 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 I am not changing policy. That's pretty much where you are. And, and, and you're very um, astute right there, Brian, to see that there is a unified front on the part of the Federal Reserve right now to kind of parry these blows against their easy monetary policy. And they're keeping things uh, pretty much the way they are, at least for the moment. Yeah, they are. And they are. I have to say, Powell's put them all sort of in that same group. And they're, they're the honey badger. They don't care. Everything else. Well, there the were, there were a Steve couple. Leishman. There were a couple. There were. 
There were a couple outliers, Brian. I don't know if you remember, but Bostic started talking about the idea of maybe the Fed discussing taper. And then I did an interview with Clarida. I believe it was last week. Now, the vice chairman, and he kind of brushed that aside, said, no, no, no. I, he said, my forecast does not foresee tapering purchases this year. And of course, Rosengren just moments ago was pretty steadfast. Yeah, and, and great stuff. We got to go. But but again, to our viewers, pay attention to rates, but also pay attention to that QE program. That's another huge deal, maybe bigger for the equity market. Steve Leisman, great stuff. Have a good weekend, great buddy. Point. Appreciate it. All right. So with a big Biden spending plan now out there on the congressional table, are there specific spots in stocks you should be hitting to invest around the plan? Joining us now are Digus Wright, Decatur Capital CEO, and Jamie Cox, Harris Financial Group Managing Partner. Uh, Digus, good to chat with you again. We'll start with you. Listen, we don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to be 1-9? Will the Republicans fight back? If it comes in at 1-6, your thesis is that there will still be investable areas around it. Those include a Thermo Fisher for medical testing, a CDW for education. What else? Yeah, so what else... Uh, Brian, is that as you look at the uh, raising the uh, federal minimum wage to $15, first of all, that's going to raise millions of people out of the poverty uh, level, and that will increase the economy. So that's that's good all the way across. But we have a couple of companies out there that are already paying $15 per individual, per their employees, and that's Amazon, Costco. So those are winners because all the other retail companies uh, that are not paying the $15 per hour will have to squeeze their margins or increase costs. So those are two plays right there that you didn't mention that will really benefit from this federal uh, increase in the federal minimum wage. As it relates to what you indicated with CDW, about $350 is going, $350 billion is going towards uh, the governments and also another $170 billion going towards K through 12 and education. CDW provides computers and software for the public and education. And ultimately, this year alone, the government increased 6%. Education increased 33%. So Mm -hmm. once again, and that basically, that company is going to do well in this regard. And lastly, uh, Thermo Fisher, they have the gold standard in the PCR COVID testing. And there's going to be another about $50 billion going for testing. So that paints a really good picture for those companies. And then Thermo, by the way, also, Digas, you probably know, owns the freezers that go down to negative 80 degrees Celsius to store. And they're $20,000 and up each. I know because I mistakenly put my hand in one. Jamie Cox, you know, in five, and I don't want to make it political, but in five days, the president will be leaving. But he's not the only one. Peter Navarro, if you pointed out, Obviously, Uber Hawk on trade, on China, pro-tariff, pro-trade war. He is also departing. Do you think this is going to open up not only, obviously, trade with China, because, by the way, the ports in California are at record volumes already, but investable opportunities? Oh, absolutely, Brian. I mean, if you look at the world economy as it sits right now, the emerging markets, which include China, are really accelerating out of the pandemic faster because they went into it first. So China had this first in, first out recovery. So you're going to see, in my view, a lot of the Asian economies probably continue to outperform both the Eurozone and the United States. 
both in 2021 and maybe even into the future. There are a couple of places where, you know, the emerging economies are ahead of us. And one of them is digital payments. So you have some of the largest companies in the world doing digital payments. And, and if you listen to some of the things that Jamie Dimon said at JP Morgan in earnings call today, they're talking about these fast moving, you know, competitors that are changing the landscape of finance. And, and they're coming from Asia. They're not necessarily coming from the U.S. So in my view, yeah. that's probably where we're going to see a lot of that. But here's the thing that I just took from the interview that Steve did with Rosergren a few minutes ago. He basically said that investors need to pay closer attention to the inoculation rate than they do the inflation rate. And, you know, over the past year, 31 central banks cut rates 139 times. So the monetary conditions, not only in the U.S., but around the world, are so supportive of fiscal stimulus that there probably is going to not be a yeah. 1.9, but could be even more. So I think that people that when you're making investment decisions, you need to realize that, that the governments are going to fill the hole yeah. with fiscal policy better than they have in the past. Well, it's, I got a spreadsheet right here. 11,148,991 people as of this morning have been vaccinated and it's up about a half a percent every day. So really starting to speed up the rate of vaccinations. Degas, last question very quickly to you on that point. J.B. Diamond also said we could have a healthy economy by summer, assuming all this continues to go on. Are you a believer in that? I am a believer in that. And I think this is going to go over into and really look at infrastructure and sustainability. I think that's a theme going forward. Good stuff, Degas Wright, Jamie Cox. Let's hope all you gentlemen and Mr. Diamond are right. Summer sounds pretty nice. Guys, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. All right, we have a lot to do on this Friday. Coming up, no open house, no walkthrough, no problem. What home buyers are doing again that may make some very nervous. Plus, making money moves in the new year. Sharon Epperson is here with the smart strategies Make sure you can retire in style. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Well, the 2020 housing market was one of the hottest that we have ever seen. Probably not surprising as everybody in big cities who had the means moved to where they felt safer. But check out this stunning stat from Redfin. 63% of homebuyers said they made a bid without ever seeing the home in person. Redfin thinks that could continue this year as well. Joining us now to dig into this and other 2021 housing predictions, Redfin Chief Economist Daryl Fairweather. Daryl, welcome. Is this just a one-year pandemic phenomena or, you know, in sort of home buying insanity, or is this the new way? Thanks for having me. I think this is the new way people are buying homes. We've had these technologies like 3D scans, video tours for a while now, but the pandemic has pushed people into adopting them and they're finding out that they can put in offers much faster if they do a lot of their home search online and then put that offer in when they feel confident enough to, to make that move. 
Well, okay. So I got a lot of questions here, Daryl, because the last <laughs> time I remember talking about this was 2006, 2007. And I went home and I said, we're doomed. Everything's going to collapse and, you know, whatever. And of course, that's pretty much what happened. Is this that again? Or is this more just a technology change and less panic buying that could get us into some trouble again? Well, a lot of it has to do with how many people are moving right now. If you're moving to the suburbs or moving across the country, it makes sense to do a lot of your home searching online because, you know, getting on a plane to go view the home just seems totally impractical. So that's driving a lot of this, but it's also how competitive the housing market is. If you can do your home search in a matter of hours and then put that offer in, you have a really big advantage. But I don't think that, you know, we need to ring the alarm bells right now. I think a lot of this is from natural demand for people just wanting to move. But, okay, and I understand, listen, Daryl, the tools are incredible. It's a totally different world than, you know, 13 years ago in terms of the way that technology works, but homes are living, breathing things, right? The floor creaks. You didn't realize the bathroom ceiling was quite so low. Maybe that's just my house. You get the whole point though, Daryl, which is the buyers, don't you still need to physically get into a home to kind of test drive it in a way? So what some buyers are doing is they're having their agent go and see the home in person and then do a video call at the same time. So the agent can take their phone and, you know, put it up to the floor so you can see that skid on the on the hardwood floors or look at the ceiling and tell you exactly how high it is. So there is usually still somebody going to see it in person, but people are relying more and more on that because they don't want to be the one to have to go and travel and see all of the homes that they're interested in. Yeah. And I know, Daryl, for obvious reasons, we've all been focused on COVID and the pandemic, but listen, COVID will be gone at some point, hopefully sooner than later. I've said demographics are destiny, and we have got perhaps the greatest demographic tailwind in the history of the United States, 85 million millennials, the first of whom will turn 40 years old this year. It's 10 million people bigger than the baby boomers, and now COVID might push their plans forward. How much of a millennial wind is going to be beyond housing in the next couple of years? With remote work, a lot of people are realizing that they have more home ownership opportunities available to them. So if you're moving from a place like Seattle, where I'm from, to Wisconsin, where actually I just moved, you'll see that home ownership is a lot more attainable, a lot more affordable, especially if you can bring your salary with you. So that's going to open up a lot of home ownership opportunities. And then also the people who are leaving the cities, leaving their condos behind, or leaving their rentals behind, there's going to be a lot more condo inventory on the market. And those are great starter homes for young people looking to buy a home in the city. You're in Scani now, Daryl? Yes, I am. Williams Bay, Wisconsin. <laughs> well, well, welcome. To, I spend a significant <laughs> amount of time in Wisconsin as well myself. I look forward to, you know, we'll hang out at the, <laughs> uh, the Mars Cheese Castle or something at some point when you can that do that great. again. Daryl Farewell, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Yeah, Lou Perrine's gas station there in Kenosha where we just were. Daryl, take care. Best to you. All right. Coming up, look past the headlines and you'll see the new COVID relief plan isn't just focused on vaccine and stimulus. It's also looking at one of the bigger threats out there, cybersecurity. We'll look at the numbers and the names that could benefit from a potential $9 billion infusion. And the under the radar name that has jumped 20% this week without a lot of fanfare. Who is your Stealth Weekly winner. I'm told the show calls it the Friday Find. We're going to reveal it to you coming up. Bitcoin down 3,500. We're back after this.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Well, here's how your Friday money looks right now in the markets. They are in the red here. We are seeing Dow Industrials come back, though. They were down over 300 points at one point. Remember yesterday at the end of the show, we talked about there's a big options expiry today, the monthly options. On those days, we've seen more volatility, oftentimes ending in the red. That usually starts at around 1 or 2 o'clock. That's kind of when it hits and rolls over. It has to do with options hedging, gamma squeezes, all the stuff I don't want to talk about. But Dow futures, or Dow, I should say, coming back, down 80 points right now. So we'll see if we can power back and end in the green. Real estate, utilities, comm services, healthcare, they are in the green as well. Energy, which had been hot, is your worst performer today. All right, some of your single big stock stories to round out the week include these, the airlines. After catching a brief tailwind yesterday, those stocks back in the red today. United leading the declines there. United is down, although not as much as it was, off about 4.5%. Many of the week's big gainers also are pulling back today, including a name like an Etsy, one of the hottest stocks in the market over the last year. Online shopping, a lot of that for masks, which Etsy sell, no doubt sells a lot of. Etsy down 4% right now, still a 15% gain for that stock on the week. And check it out, Bed Bath & Beyond. Bed Bath & Beyond is a big stock story as well. That shares, those shares down 5%. Again, not as much as they were This is after the heavily shorted retailer rallied more than 30% this week. The short sellers scale back. Maybe the short's being put back on. We are seeing Bed Bath & Beyond down 5%. All right, let's step out of stocks and get a CNBC News update right now with Sue Herrera. Sue. Good to see you, Brian. Thanks so much. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. There are now more than 2 million confirmed deaths from COVID-19 worldwide. Nearly one in five has been in the U.S., Even as vaccination efforts pick up speed, the number of new deaths remains near record levels. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says members of Congress may be prosecuted if NN arrested if any rioters at the Capitol last week were helped out. Pelosi says the assault highlights the need to beware of domestic threats. Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser says the city will see a, quote, new normal for security after the inauguration in light of the Capitol riots. An FBI official says 270 suspects have been identified in connection with the Capitol Hill attack and more than 100 have been taken into custody. And some things don't go away. Tax season. It is starting late this year. The IRS will start accepting individual returns on February 12th. The deadline to file returns remains April 15th. To speed up your return, the IRS is urging people to file their returns electronically. You are up to date, Brian. Good to see you. Back to you. Well, good to see you as well, Sue Herrera. I look forward to seeing you in person again one day, Sue. One day. <laughs> hey, it'll happen. We're getting there. All right. Time now for our Friday find. That is this show's check under the hood of a big stock mover that did not get a lot of attention either today or this week. And today's is a tasty one. Shake Shack. 
Now, shares may be down a little bit today, but if you haven't been paying attention, you should. The Shack up 20% on the week, hitting an all-time high. Company giving an upbeat fourth quarter sales outlook of four days ago. And with many restaurants closed or limited in seating, fast food is the only real option for many. And it is booming along with the Shack. Look at these weekly sales numbers per Shake Shack store. In the second quarter, the average store did about 45,000 in sales. In the third quarter, 58,000. Fourth quarter, 62,000 per store, per week. Now, if you factor in an average ticket, I don't know, call it 25 bucks, that's about 700 additional customers per week. And of course, with this boom in fast food, we also have some growing health worries down the road. But hey, for today, that is your Friday find. The Shack and its investors having a very good week. All right, coming up. What is the best way to maximize your retirement dollars in these still scary and uncertain times? Well, do not fear because Sharon Epperson is here. And COVID pushing many smaller colleges to the brink. How one school is dealing with its own dire financial situation. All right, welcome back. Now to a big story involving ExxonMobil. Shares of Exxon are down today. At one point, off more than 5%. They have a slight bounce back this afternoon, but it all comes after a report this morning that ExxonMobil is being investigated by the SEC. The Wall Street Journal reports that the investigation stems over a claim that Exxon may have purposefully overvalued a key oil field in Texas. Story says that some employees complained that they were being forced to use unrealistic drilling assumptions on the field, that would then make it look like the field was worth more than it truly was at the time. Even worse, the journal reports that one of the employees who stepped up to complain was ultimately fired. Now, Exxon did respond all within the last hour, writing this, quote, The claims made by an alleged whistleblower and reported by the Wall Street Journal are demonstrably false. Actual and provable performance exceeded drilling plans for the Permian, and such performance has been accurately represented to the investment community. There you go. They also noted that they will not discuss the job status of individual employees. But whatever their beef with the Wall Street Journal and that story may be, the allegation nonetheless comes at a rough time for Exxon investors. It's right when oil is on the rise. And analysts are finally getting more bullish. There have been at least four upgrades on ExxonMobil this month. And this is all eyes continue to watch that 7% dividend. Well, today is one of the worst performing big cap stocks in America. Keep your eye on Exxon. O-M. Well, saving more has long, of course, been a top financial resolution for the new year for millions of families. Yet some Americans may try to reach that goal a little bit differently this year. CNBC senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson joining us now with more. Sharon. Well, Brian, about 40% of people say they'll be in financial survival mode this year, focused on just dealing with day-to-day -day money matters, according to Fidelity. But many workers are also trying to figure out the best ways to keep putting money away and maximize their retirement savings. 31-year-old Angel Trin works in cybersecurity. Her main focus this year, her own economic security. My top goals for um, 2021 is to actually be better about investing. She's saving as much as she can in her retirement accounts now so that she's well prepared later. 
Now I have to play catch up. Now after I paid off all my student loan debt, I can now max out my investments. The maximum you can contribute to an IRA this year is $6,000. You can put away up to $19,500 in your 401k. If you're 50 or older, you can add catch-up contributions to both, an additional $1,000 for an IRA and an extra $6,500 in a 401k. Trends retirement savings are mostly in target date funds, which automatically rebalance from stocks to bonds as you get closer to your retirement date. This year, she wants to start investing on her own. It's definitely one of my resolutions. Of course, investing is risky, but at the same time, like the, the bigger the risk, the bigger the return. Financial advisor Roger Ma, author of Work Your Money, Not Your Life, says focus on what you can control in the investment landscape. What you're invested in, how much you pay to invest, and where you put each of those investments, what type of accounts you use. Then build on what you already own. Advice Trin hopes will help her with her ultimate goal. I want to retire with a lot of money. <laughs> and be financially free. Roger Ma says one way to become a more independent investor is to buy funds that often make up a target date fund, a U.S. stock index fund, international stock index fund, and a U.S. bond fund. Buying those investments on your own may give you a better handle on investing while still making sure your retirement accounts are well diversified. Brian? All right, Sharon, not letting you go just yet. Got a question. Okay, if people have asking for a friend, if people have more money that they could put away <laughs> beyond 401ks and IRAs, the two most well-known, are there any other uh, tax-advantaged ways to save, given that certain taxes may be on the rise? Well, this is a good one that people need to look out for. If you have a high-deductible health plan, you should definitely look into setting up a health savings account. It gives you triple tax savings. You put in those contributions tax-free. The money grows tax deferred and then you take the money out in retirement tax-free and you have to use it for medical expenses or health care expenses but keep in mind those are often the most expensive uh, the, the highest expenses that many retirees have so that's a great way to save for retirement you can pay for medical expenses now with the money if you need to but if you don't need to you can just invest that and then you'll have that money to pay for expenses in retirement for your medical care all right, good real-world practical advice there with taxes. Certainly a hot topic this year. Sharon Epperson, have a great Friday. We'll see you soon, Sharon. Take care. You too. And, of course, a lot more to this than just a two- or three-minute TV segment. So go to cnbc.com forward slash invest in you to read more about that. All right, coming up, $170 billion for schools, $50 billion for COVID-19 testing, and $9 billion for cybersecurity. We'll take a look at what Joe Biden's spending plan might mean for cybersecurity stocks and which ones might benefit the most. And CNBC's American Greed is back. The first episode will take a look at the trials of Michael Avenatti. Remember, he dominated the airwaves despite alleged crimes ranging from theft to tax evasion until an, extent, an attempt to extort Nike brought the publicity tour to an end. American Greed premieres on January 18th, 10 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss it, but we'll see you back on this show in two minutes. All right, welcome back. Well, one potentially overlooked part of Joe Biden's proposed new spending plan will be on cybersecurity. His America Rescue Plan includes $9 million, billion rather, $9 million is not a lot, to help fund the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, as well as other cyber initiatives. 
And that could give a boost to some stocks that were already on a pretty red hot putt run this past year. Look at that one year performance, FireEye, 28%, Palo Alto, 51, and Zscaler, the ultimate performer in that group, up 251%. Your next test says there's likely more room to run in these and other stocks. Let's welcome in our friend Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, welcome. And like everything else, I just wonder, because how much of that price performance we just showed was already on the expectation of money being thrown at the sector, particularly in the wake of that big hack in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, it's a great question. Post-SolarWinds hack, you know, in our opinion, it's one of the biggest black eyes we've seen for the cybersecurity sector ever. But this is just, I think we're only, only in the first, second inning of this all playing out. And if you look at the federal spend, the incremental $9 billion last night, it's a jaw-dropper. Because that's going to further add fuel to the engine, what we're seeing in terms of spending. And we're talking about what we think could be 25, 30% increase in spend across federal. And I think Biden came out swinging on cybersecurity after what we saw in the solar winds hack. Smart moves going to benefit a handful of these players front and center. And who are those handful? Well, I think front and center is Telos. I, they federal play, playing DOD, a lot of three-letter intelligence agencies. Zscaler has been one of our favorites. They also have heavy government exposure as well. Also, SailPoint and Tenable. These are some, some names, that I think, from a re-rating perspective and what they're seeing growth. You could see growth potentially in some of these names go up 40 50% in terms of what we're seeing, not just on federal, but across enterprise, given the sophistication of hacks especially post-solar winds. What we saw last night, I think that's just the first step of what's going to be a massive spending increase. Yeah, I, I, Dan, I noticed Palantir is not anywhere. Is that just because you don't cover it or you just don't like it? No, I like Palantir, and I think they are going to benefit in terms of the federal. But I think what we're seeing in terms of our checks, it's really names like a Zscale or a CyberArk, a Telos, that are disproportionately benefiting from what we're seeing in terms of the hack. They'll benefit to rising tide lifts all boats here, but also they're, fo- they're starting to focus more and more on enterprise. And I think overall cybersecurity, mm-hmm. it's our favorite sector in tech going into this year. I still think a lot of these names, re-rate valuations continue to stretch. I think street still underestimating numbers by potentially 10, 20%. Are they all kind of the same or is there literally critical differences between a Zscaler and a CyberArk and a Palo Alto that we need to focus more on? Yeah, I think there's critical differences. If I look at Zscaler where it's all heading, a Zscaler or a CrowdStrike, they're really ones that they're taking everything to the cloud. You look at things like Jedi with Microsoft, it's Zscaler, or CrowdStrike, zero trust architecture. Palo Alto is going to benefit as well being an install-based vendor. But what's happening, you have a firewall which is existing as well as moving to the cloud. And there's, there's a handful called three to five niche players. You look at a sale point, a tenable. And then I think the golden child here in federal is Telos. They play really in a lot of these black ops, and we're seeing more and more DOD spending. They increase. And that's why, in our opinion, this is still an under-the-radar sector. Even though the stocks had to move, I think it's only just started. Yeah. Good stuff, Dan. I have some big names there and a, and a part of the plan that may be overlooked a bit. Dan, have a good weekend. Thank you very much. You too. All right. Still ahead. Some colleges in crisis, the pandemic wreaking havoc on enrollment and funding. 
We'll take a look at a state school that has had to slash its budget to students stay home. And don't forget, you can watch us live anywhere while you're using the CNBC app. If you don't have it, download it today. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Well, the pandemic has pushed many colleges and universities to the financial brink, with especially smaller regional schools being vulnerable. Scott Cohn joining us now with a look at one such school and what they're doing to combat it. Scott. Yeah, Brian, one of those schools is the University of California, Santa Cruz, home of the banana slugs. Before the pandemic, as many as 20,000 students roamed the campus nestled in a redwood forest overlooking Monterey Bay. Today, it's pretty much dead. Nearly all instruction is virtual. I really feel like my college experience was kind of taken away from me. Um, And I feel like a lot of students feel like this as well. They've felt better over in the administration building as well, where they say support from the state this year is cut by some $20 million. And with few students on campus, that is just the start. It doesn't include the other parts of our budget, which are uh, tuition and fees that students pay, research grants, uh, and also our auxiliaries, which are our housing, dining, parking Altogether, a nearly $160 million revenue hit out of an $830 million budget going into this year. Nationwide, Moody's projects revenue losses of 5 to 10 percent this year and enrollment declines at 60 percent of public universities and 75 percent of private schools. Now, the University of California system, of which UC Santa Cruz is a part, just announced a return to on-campus instruction this fall. But right now, Brian, the fall seems a long way off. It is, but right now is when you got to start planning. So what, if anything, do we know about what high school seniors are planning for the fall? I know some myself, Scott, I'm sure you do, and it's, it's a really confusing, hard time. Some of them are thinking, oh, I'll take a gap year. Uh, I'll just do a post-grad year. Yeah. They don't know what's going on. And a lot of them are just kind of stuck in their tracks right now. There's a survey by an outfit called Carnegie Dartlet that looked at applications at the, in the thick of the, the season in the fall. And it, sh- it said that one th- only one third of, uh, of students had, uh, had applied to all of their choices. So they're, they're sort of holding back now, waiting and seeing. The hope is that we get through this by the fall. Yeah, Scott Cohn, thank you very much. By the way, banana slug, no known predators was a motto they had. All right, Scott, thank you. Well, that does it for us on The Exchange this week. We'll see you on Monday, but stick around. From mega sites to stores to pharmacies, could vaccine rollouts look very different across different parts of the country? We'll get a look at how they are unfolding digitally next on Power Lunch. That's after the break. See you Monday. Have a great long weekend. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. 
See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.